0: Bible, encourage you to open that up and follow along. So I will read and then I will uh, pray for Mike and then he'll come on up here. If you would, if you're physically able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. All right, John 15, starting in verse 1. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Oh Father, our hearts are full with joy and gratitude this morning. We are so thankful that we get to hear these words from our Lord and Savior here 2000 years later and that they minister to our hearts and our souls. We thank you, Lord, that this instruction was not just for the the 12 that he was speaking to then, but it is for millions upon millions, billions of those who name the name of Christ and that we join together with them in, in receiving this word and the delightful promises that are entailed therein. Lord, our hearts are filled with gratitude and joy that we get to uh, celebrate the unity of the body of Christ through something like a, a pulpit swap. And I'm we're, we are grateful for our sister church, Creekside, we're grateful for their, their generosity in supporting City Church as a plant now almost 10 years ago and for the camaraderie and unity in the faith and in, uh, in co-laboring for the gospel for a decade now. And I'm grateful for uh, my, my friend and brother Mike to come and preach and we pray that you would Uh, Fill him with your spirit, that you would fill all of us with your, your spirit, that your word would go forth. Lord, that you would stir us to faith and to action and to joy in you, that as Christ says here, that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. And may you be glorified through all of this this morning. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Come on up.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Hey, it's good to be with you all this morning. It's not my first time here. It's been a little while since I've been here in the pulpit. Um, This spring, Chipper and I had the good time of teaching a class together here, and uh, we're already making plans to do it again next spring, and we just really enjoy working together. So thank you for letting us come. Um, I hate to to tell you this, but you all got the short end of this exchange, for sure. Um, I'm very thankful for Chipper heading over to Creekside. They're going to get a major upgrade in preaching this morning. Um, for the rest of you here, though, Chipper will be back next week, so just hold on. It's just one week. Um, it'll get better. Hey, um, listen, uh, if you have a Bible, John 15, if you wouldn't mind turning over there, it'd be good to have it open in front of you, however you can get it. So la- last thing in the world I want is for you to think, hey, this is Mike's you know, five best what are steps to a happy life or something. That's, nob- that's garbage. Nobody needs that. You don't need to hear that from me. I don't need you to want to hear that from me. Um, so let's have God's word open together and, and you watch as I walk through it and you decide um, whether you think I'm accurately representing what's here in the text. And you can talk about it in your community groups this week and email Chipper and Ryan and Jay afterwards. Um, since you don't know me though, I'll let me just tell you a little bit about myself before I, I get into God's word this morning. Um, I, so one of my sort of like nerdy passions is I'm, I'm into the world of productivity and, and personal development. I've, I've read the books, I've listened to the podcast, I follow the folks on YouTube. I'm just really into this idea that we can kind of uh, be attentive to ourselves and set ourselves up to really succeed and be effective in our roles. So I'm a, a husband and I'm a father and I'm a pastor and I'm a neighbor and a community member and so in each of these roles I have uh, ways that I can be effective and ways that I could be not effective and I'm kind of interested in the world of people who want to be as effective as they can be in the roles that they have. So um, one of the things that I think this world of productivity and personal, ve- personal development gets right, or does really well, is in the last 10 or 15 years we've come to realize um, that sustained change in our lives is the result of the compounding effect of small decisions consistently made. Or to put it much more simply, is the result of us changing our habits. We've got a lot of research now to back up what personally I believe God has always designed to be true of us, which is to understand that sustained, lasting change comes about because we make small decisions consistently. So um, to illustrate this, maybe in the negative, um, one of the ways that we try to bring about change in ourselves that almost never works is through these kind of big, grand gestures, uh, line-in-the-sand moments, sort of like New Year's resolutions. So just out of curiosity... Anybody still keeping their New Year's resolution from this year? I got one hand halfway up <laughs> and a whole bunch of no hands up. Okay, so that kind of illustrates the point. I don't know how they measure this, but there are folks who try to measure the effectiveness of New Year's resolutions, and they estimate that somewhere around two-thirds of New Year's resolutions don't make it out of the month of January. Now, this is a empirically proven way to not bring lasting change in our lives. If you want to lose 10 pounds, I feel like losing weight is always sort of like the thing that we talk about when we talk about changing ourselves. If you want to lose 10 pounds, it's not going to happen if you say, I'm never going to eat a carb again starting tomorrow. Not today, because they got the pastries here at church, but, you know, tomorrow, we're gonna, I'm never going to eat a carb again. And maybe you'll drop 10 pounds, but then you're going to come back to church next Sunday, and they're going to put the carbs out again. And in another week, you're actually going to be 10 pounds heavier than you were when you started. It's not, there's no way to bring lasting change to draw some big line in the sand moment, I'm never again or I will always forever every day from this point. Lasting change really comes about as a result of small decisions consistently made. And I think that the world of productivity, self-development, personal development, I think they get that right. I think we've come to understand that's really how we change as people or grow or develop as people. Here's what I think is missing in that whole world. Humbly speaking, I'm, I only have a seminary degree. I'm not probably qualified to make the statement I'm about to make. But um, what I think is missing in the world of productivity and personal development is any sort of shared vision or definition of the kind of person we ought to be developing into. Like there's not a clear sense or a consensus of what is a virtuous person that I would want my habits or my small decisions consistently made to point me toward. So for instance, there's one guy I follow on YouTube, and one of his things is he does these like 30-day challenges where he tries a new habit um, for 30 days. And so one of them is um, he tried no caffeine for 30 days. And I just want to say right off the bat, nobody develops into a good person (laughs) by abandoning caffeine for 30 days. He's also tried um, waking up at 5 a.m. every day for 30 days, taking a cold shower every day for 30 days. Um, He got rid of his smartphone for 30 days. That one, I think, could really benefit us. But he does, does all these different things he tries for 30 days. The funny thing is, as far as I can tell, none of them have ever stuck. And I think part of the reason is all we're doing is kind of going through a buffet line. Here's some things other people try, some people that maybe I look up to, and they do this or that, or we all hear about, you know, CEOs of, Famous companies, they get up at 5 a.m. and they don't, you know, they wear the same outfit every single day and all that kind of stuff. So they try all these things, but the reality is there's no, like, true north. There's no, like, this is the direction I'm going to head. This is the kind of person I want to become. And there's no sense of these things I'm going to choose that I'm going to add into my life, these decisions I'm going to make, are actually going to lead me somewhere I want to go. The best that can be done is some sort of sense of, like, personal happiness or maybe a little bit more followers on YouTube, or more people that read our blog, or um, some sense of life balance, whatever it is that that phrase means. So you all, you may not know this, but you all started a sermon series a couple weeks ago that is, I think, aimed at laying out this good life. That is aimed at laying out the type of person that we ought to want to become. It's this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, probably the most famous sermon ever preached in three chapters in the book of Matthew, lays out the virtuous person, the person who will flourish in this life because they are living according to God's design for them. This is uh, laid out by Jesus who begins the sermon by repeatedly saying, here's the kind of person who is blessed, in other words, who flourishes in this life because they're they're living a virtuous life because they're uh, living in line with their creation design. And you may not know this, especially if you are a person who maybe grew up going to church, but you're, you've been away from church for a while and you came this morning for one reason or another. or um, Maybe you just this is your first time ever going to church or second time going to church. You may not know this. You may not know this depending on what kind of church you grew up in, if you grew up in the church. But Jesus actually directly tells us in John chapter 10, I have come that they, they being his followers, that they might have life and have it abundantly. I have come that my followers who live according to my teaching and my modeling will experience an overflow or an abundance of meaning and purpose and a, a, a joy that goes beyond circumstance. They'll be at peace with the world around them, and the circumstances that they have. They'll they'll live in such a way that they can say, honestly, I was meant for this. He actually says that, you may have caught it right at the end of the passage that Ryan just read for us. He says in in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's this sort of ridiculous notion out there, well, maybe I shouldn't have used that word. Um, I find it to be a little ridiculous, but there's this notion out there that if you want to become a Christian, you have to check your happiness at the door. You can't enjoy life. You can't uh, find joy, you know, because finding joy is like the opposite of, of being a Christian, which is like having a terrible life, but trusting that it'll all be worth it when you go to heaven. But That's not anywhere near the teaching of Jesus, who says these things to his disciples that I've just finished teaching you, I'm telling you these things so that your joy can be like when a toddler fills up their own cup of water. Some of you have experienced this. They never leave any spill room when they fill up their own water. They, They insist that they can do it, go to the sink or to the refrigerator, fill it up, and you're just like, leave an eighth of an inch, just an eighth of an inch, it'll change your life. But they're like, no, 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 that's valuable real estate, so it gets right up to the brim. And they turn around and there's five to seven feet between where they filled up their water and the place they're going to sit down. And that five to seven feet of flooring is about to get drenched. And I think that's kind of the picture Jesus is laying out for us. These things, he says to his disciples, I'm teaching you so that as you're walking around through life, your, your joy tank is so full, your little cup of joy is so full that when you get jostled by life, what's coming spilling out of you is joy. Not like an escapist happiness. Not like your head is up in the clouds and you're, you're finding a silver lining to everything if you just look hard enough. Not that kind of stuff, but just a sense of like the one thing that makes my life matter I can never lose. That kind of joy. Jesus says, that is what I am teaching you, disciples. So a little bit of context before we get into our passage this morning. Jesus and his disciples are out for an after dinner walk throughout the city of Jerusalem. It's uh, the time of year here in Gainesville where we can start to reimagine the possibility of an after-dinner walk. That won't mean we're going to lose 10 pounds in sweat. That's how you do it. I never even put that together before. If you're trying to lose weight, just walk in Gainesville. But anyways, they're out for an after-dinner walk in the cool of the evening. They've just eaten dinner. They've actually just eaten this dinner. And they're out walking through the city of Jerusalem. And as they're walking, on each side of the road, they're going to see houses with little courtyards. And the courtyards will have uh, a a trellis, maybe a lattice, maybe a whole pergola. And growing up on these structures will be vines with grape clusters. Now Jesus is the consummate teacher. He's an unbelievably brilliant teacher. And he's always looking around his immediate surroundings for things he can use as object lessons for his disciples. To teach them about the kingdom of God. To teach them about this good life that he has come to provide his followers, and to teach them about the kind of person who gets to enjoy that life. So as they're walking through the streets, and the sun's going down, and you know, there's no streetlights or anything, so they're getting kind of the last glimpses of these vines and these grape clusters. And he says to them, I am the true vine, chapter 15, verse 1. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. All right, so look at the vines, Jesus says. Look at the the branches, look at the grape clusters. I don't know, maybe there's some people out there working, probably not, but maybe there's some people out there working at this time of day. It's the cool of the day. They're not going to do it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when it's really hot, and so maybe they're out tending to the vines, and he's like, look, that right there, that's a picture of everything I've been talking about. The, that vine that's, that's connected down into the root system in the ground and is growing up, that's me, Jesus says. And those branches, those are you. And that vine dresser, and I love the intimacy of this metaphor. That's the Father. Now in our one-day shipping, what are they down to now? Five-hour shipping, something. Our, our crazy, frenetic, incredibly fast-paced world, this metaphor, is almost a little bit lost on us, like the punch of it. Because gardening, tending to vines, it takes a lot of time. It's an incredibly intimate metaphor to be right up in the business of the vine and, and slowly taking care of it, slowly pruning the branches that are bearing fruit and looking for branches where there's not any fruit being born. And um, there's, It's not a linear process, gardening. It's not sort of like the way we think about I'm gonna set a one-year goal and I'm gonna take these steps, and then once I've reached the goal, then it's finished and I move on. There's no finish line for gardening. You never get a vine and you're like, all right, now it's done, and it will always bear the maximum amount of fruit, so I can walk away from it and never attend to it again. It's a very ongoing process, and it is not at all efficient. And yet, this is where the father is. Right in there among his people, right in there working alongside his son to tend to and care for these branches to produce fruit. So let's apply it to you, Jesus says. Verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We all get what Jesus is saying here. We understand the object lesson anyways. We, you know, Think about the last time a big storm rode through Gainesville and there's um, branches down or maybe even trees. And for a couple days, those branches will have green leaves or green pine needles on them, won't they? But none of us are confused about whether or not there's any life in those branches. Like Those leaves are not going to flourish. They're eventually going to turn brown, dry up, and shrivel up. And we're going to have to cut up those branches and put them on the side of the road because they're dead, because they are disconnected from their source of life. Jesus says the very same thing is true of you. Whatever life you might have, whatever fruit you might bear, is a direct result of you being connected, Jesus says, to me. That's the point of this object lesson. And let me just drive it home, Jesus says. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is the picture of the good life, of the life we were designed to live, a life where as we live it, we have a sense of, I was meant for this, a life where we feel like there's meaning, like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves like our circumstances can't threaten our experience of this life. It is the life of bearing fruit, a life of connectedness to Jesus that results in us bearing fruit. And if you have any questions about, like, why is that a good life? Why is that a life that I should give myself over to living? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Jesus actually gives three answers to that question in this passage. The first one, verse 7 if you abide in me, Jesus says, or remain or stay anchored or stay connected to me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So the, for one of the first reasons that Jesus lists that this is a good life, that this is worth living, it will be a source of joy, is that you are going to pray the kinds of prayers that are going to get yes as an answer. Let's just hear Jesus clearly here for a minute. Because this might be one of those verses where we could say, whatever it is you want, the raise you're praying for, getting into that internship program, or getting into that next degree program, getting that person to call you back after that date, whatever it is that you might be praying for, some people might tell you, look, right here, Jesus says, if you just pray it hard enough, God will say yes. And that's not what this pastor is saying, even a little bit. In fact, in just a few chapters before they finish their walk, Jesus is going to say, I'm telling you all this so that you understand in this world you're going to have trouble. It's going to be a hard life following me in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus is not promising you everything you desire right now. In fact, I look back to myself 10 years ago and think, I'm so glad I didn't get some of the things I desired back then. He's not promising you everything you desire right now. What he is saying is as you stay connected to him, And as he and his life and his words flow through you and and begin to produce fruit, you begin to pray sort of different kinds of prayers. You begin to pray things like, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, my, my whole thing, whatever my circumstances are today, I just want your name to be revered, to be looked up to in my spheres of influence. I want you to be seen as the God you are, not as the God that we are deceived into believing you are. That kind of prayer is going to get a yes. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean your circumstances are going to go one way or another. Maybe you'll pray prayers like Your kingdom come and Your will be done, wherever it is. As in my home with my roommate or with my spouse and kids, if that applies to you, or in my classroom or in my works, you know, on the work side or in the job side or in my office or wherever. Just let me be a part of Your kingdom today. That kind of prayer is going to get a yes. When you pray, God, give me the spiritual and physical resources so that I can hallow your name and bring your kingdom, that kind of prayer is going to get a yes. When you pray, God, forgive me of my debts, that kind of prayer is going to get a yes. When you pray, help me to become the kind of person who will forgive others, that kind of prayer is going to get a yes. When you say, help me to stand up in the midst of temptation so that I won't fail, that kind of prayer is going to get a yes. And then when you do fail, then you go back to the whole prayer for forgiveness, and that prayer gets a yes too. We begin to pray the cup. That doesn't mean you don't pray over your circumstances. Look, we pray for people to be healed. We pray for lives to be restored and relationships to be restored. We pray over circumstances. We have all sorts of evidence of that. Jesus, just a few chapters after this, is going to pray, let this cup pass from me. There's just going to be a higher prayer that's going to supersede that. That whatever happens in my circumstance, whether or not it goes the way I want it to go, my baseline prayer is, God, your will be done, your name be hallowed. And that kind of prayer is going to get a yes. And that's just the first one. Second, in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I don't know about you. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, I have days and weeks, and sometimes months, where it's like, am I really a Christian? Like, it, I don't know. After I look at my report card from this last week, and hopefully you don't keep report cards, but if you do, and you look at it for the past like week or month, and you're like, I don't even know if this is even legit. Like, am I really a Christian? Do I really have the Holy Spirit in me? Am I really growing to look more like Jesus? And, and here, Jesus is saying, well, there's actually proof. It's not so much that you pass the theological test. I don't know if you know this, but when you you know stand in the gates of, of heaven... You're not going to be handed an SAT-style test to figure out if you have the right theology. That's That's not a judge of the follower of Jesus. That matters, but that's just the soil that allows the fruit to grow. Jesus says the assurance is that there is fruit bearing in your life. And I know myself well enough to know that if there's anything that happens that's marginally right, that's marginally in line with Jesus' character and with with who God wants me to be as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a neighbor, if there's anything that's remotely close to right, it has to be the Holy Spirit because I am way too selfish to do it on my own. And remember the metaphor. Remember the time it takes to care for a vine. So often I get discouraged because I look at my life in chunks of a day or a week. But if I look over the course of the last five years depending on how long you've been following Jesus, if you look over the course of years you can see that you are growing and bearing fruit I've been married, it'll be ten years in May and my wife will tell you, and I'm God's gift to nobody but I'm a different, I'm a different person than I was the day we got married and that's proof that the Father is here tending to me pruning me disciplining me, not not discipline in the sense of like punishing me for wrong action, but forming me into the kind of person who can bear more fruit. And so on those days when I think, just man, I don't even know if this is real, all these things I did or didn't do this week or things I said or didn't say, and then I can look over the course of this chunk of time and realize God is at work in me and he does not discipline people who are not his children. And then, this is the one that blows my mind. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, So have I loved you. Abide in my love. Y'all, I don't know if all the days of my life are enough for me to dwell in and understand that the eternal Son of God is extending the very same love to us that he has received from eternity past from the Father. That for all of time, and before time was even a thing, The Son of God is receiving and reciprocating this incredible love from the Father. The Spirit is in that mix too. This love that God describes in Exodus 34 when he first describes his character as um, uh, merciful, which in the Hebrew shares a root with the word for womb. So like God loves us, the very first word he uses to describe himself is, is with the same kind of tender affection that a mother has for her newborn infant. And that he's, he's gracious or he's generous. He loves to give us everything we need to lavish all that we need. That he's incredibly patient. How often do we imagine God is really impatient with us? We've talked about this before. Can't understand why you didn't. I mean, it was the topic of the sermon last week. You still don't get this down. We kind of have this running narrative in our head that has much more to do with how we were parented and much more to do with how we relate to like our bosses and people we look up to and let, much less to do with the character of God revealed to us. He's incredibly patient. He has steadfast love. He's, he's going to keep his promises to us, regardless whether we keep our promises to him, and he is unwaveringly all these things. So the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has enjoyed receiving and reciprocating this incredibly infinite love from the Father, and he's saying, that is what I have, check this, already given to you. Let's not miss the point here. Jesus is not giving ways for us to earn this love of the Father. He's saying, you already have it. Remember verse three, already you are clean, already you are a branch connected to this vine. It's not a question of connecting yourself to the vine. It is already yours. Just stay here. This is what we experience when we live the fruit-bearing life Y'all are in the middle of, or the beginning of, rather, a long series looking at what it is to bear fruit. To be the kind of person who's meek and merciful, who makes peace, who doesn't allow a grudge to exist for just even a second in their heart because they know how destructive anger is to human flourishing. Who won't uh, go back for that second look and will stop at nothing to keep lust at bay because objectifying and commodifying the body of another person is absolutely destructive to everybody involved. The person who will be faithful to their commitments, big and small. You don't need to call down all sorts of curses from heaven or things like that for somebody to believe you. The person who gives generously to friend and foe alike, who overcomes evil not by becoming equally evil and angry, but overcomes evil by outlasting that evil with integrity, with patience, and with compassion. And on and on Jesus is going to go describing the kinds of fruit that prove that we are his disciples. That Are part of us experiencing the love of God that changes into the kind of person, people who pray prayers that God says yes to. But here's what I want to sit in just for a few more minutes before I go sit down. How do we become the kind of people who live this kind of life? This is so incredibly important. And I want you to, to notice with me as we read through this passage, you've heard it read through, I've been preaching through it and reading it. Notice with me that even though this Good, best possible life we can live is defined by bearing fruit. Jesus never commands his disciples to bear fruit. Did you notice it? That phrase, that verb it does not appear in the imperative move, mood anywhere in this passage. That's not the command he gives us. Because he knows that for a branch to just change the kind of fruit it bears based on its own effort is impossible. So imagine with me, this metaphor is going to break down really fast, but imagine with me that you're a branch on an orange tree and you discern that your gardener wants apples out of you. Again, I know most of you have not thought that way previously, but just go with me on this. And so you see some fruit forming on the end of your branch and you're like, be an apple, be an apple. it's Got to be an apple. Gardener wants an apple. Come on, be an apple. And it starts to form and you're like, ooh, that actually looks a little bit like an apple. Come on, you can do it. Be an apple, be an apple. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, it's an orange. Because you're an orange tree, and orange trees bear oranges. I have found in my own life, and in so many churches I've been in, and conversations with Christians I have been in, that we feel an immense amount of shame around our inability to make ourselves bear the right kind of fruit when we were never commanded to do that in the first place. It is as ridiculous for us to think, I keep using that word, sorry, it is as foolish, let me just use that word, for us to think that we can staple meekness onto a dead branch and be like, look, God, fruit bearing. But let me just take a weight off your shoulders this morning. Jesus' command to you, follower of Jesus, is not to make yourself bear fruit, it is to abide In Him. That when we feel down in our inability to make the right kind of fruit come out of the end of our branch, the problem is we're looking at the wrong end of the branch. That our effort goes to not making gentleness come out where we were harsh, or making patience come out where we were angry, or making generosity come out where we were stingy. The effort goes towards our connection to Jesus Christ. For centuries, for generations, followers of Jesus have had habits be a part of their life. Practices that they engage, we call them spiritual disciplines, but practices that they engage over and over again, small decisions aimed at consistently made, are are all about being close to Jesus. The, The three that are sort of the bread and butter of the Christian are Bible reading, prayer, and corporate worship. There's others you can add on to those fasting, generosity, confession of sin, solitude and silence. There's all sorts, but really those main three are there. Not so that, you know, I read my Bible because it's going to, like, baptize my day and everything's going to work now, but because I'm trying to make sure I'm connected to Jesus. And I pray not because I'm going to get something out of him, but because I'm trying to be connected to Jesus. And I come into this space not because I'm trying to, like, feel better about my life, but because I'm trying to be connected to Jesus. And those small decisions made consistently over time open us up to Jesus being the one who produces fruit in us. Because when we abide in Jesus, this is so important, when we abide in Jesus, fruit bearing ceases to be an impossible standard and becomes a promise. Did you see it in verse 5? Whoever abides in me and I am in him, he it is, that bears much fruit. However long it is you're going to spend in the Sermon on the Mount looking at all these different ways that that could come across as an impossibly high standard. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 becomes a promise for us if we abide in Jesus Christ. Not perfection. Nobody's going to be perfect. Nobody's talking about being perfect. But the ability to increase our capacity to bear fruit becomes a promise for those who will give their effort to abiding in Jesus Christ. So, I am so excited and thankful that City Church has purchased this building, that y'all are putting down these roots here to be present, hopefully, Lord willing, generationally for the good of downtown Gainesville. In in Creekside, we we get a front row seat to this. It's such a blessing to watch the Lord move here. If I could be so bold, the City Roots campaign is good news for downtown Gainesville to the extent that city church is putting down roots in Jesus Christ. So like, just imagine with me, three, four, however many years in the future, it's all done. All the renovations are finished. you got the new worship center. All the staff members have an office. Everything's amazing. The kids have their own space. you got everything is humming. It's exactly the way you wanted it to be. Somebody shows up that first Sunday. What's going on here at this city church? What kind of a community of people will they find? Will they find a community of people that's like every other community out there, angry, self-righteous, judgmental, condemning? Or will they find a group of people who are loving, filled with joy, at peace, who are self-controlled and gentle, and good, and patient, and kind, and faithful. That work can start today. Not by some big grand gesture, I'm never going to be mad ever again in my life, but with the one small step towards abiding in Jesus Christ, and then again tomorrow, and then again tomorrow, and then again the next day. Because of what Jesus has done, we have nothing left to earn and stand only to gain the goodness of abiding in him and producing fruit for his kingdom. That is a life worth living. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, I thank you and praise you that over the course of centuries, 2,000 miles and 6,000 years away, you have preserved this little intimate teaching that Jesus had with just a small group of men so that we could sit here in 2022 Gainesville, Florida and we could be encouraged by your command not to staple fruit onto the edge of a dead branch but to abide in you. Father, may this lift a burden off of us this morning that we would not fix our eyes on the end of our branch and put all of our effort towards trying to make ourselves good as if we could make ourselves good after we had to be saved by nothing less than the death of God Himself. Lord, may we simply connect ourselves to You, be ruthless about removing the things from our life that distract us from You, so that under the tender and watchful care of the Father who is our vine dresser, we can be pruned and disciplined and formed into the kind of people who bear much fruit for your glory. Father, I pray as we come to this table this morning that you would nourish our souls with the finished work of Jesus Christ. We would be reminded of his love for us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us, and that we would leave this place anchored anew in the love that is ours in Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen.